Barbary Wars, 1801-1805 and 1815-1816. Some of the information uh, for this podcast comes from the website of the Office of the Historian.gov, some from Thomas Jefferson's papers, John Adams' papers, and the Bill of Rights Institute.org, plus various other books and journals. The conflicts with the Barbary pirates would trouble the first four presidents of the United States George Washington, John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, and James Madison. This topic is for one of my faithful supporters, and I might add, my grandson, Joshua T. Barbary Corsairs During the 17th century, the two sides of the Mediterranean were in the hands of two separate and unfriendly civilizations, different in religion, morals, law, economy, and knowledge. On the northern side were the European Christians, and on the southern side were the African Muslims. The sea that lay between was a busy highway for both sides. Trade with the Levant was important for all the European countries, especially before 1492, when Europeans began looking for a westward route to the east in order to avoid the dangers of the overland trek and to avoid the Arab middlemen. The Levant, incidentally, is a geographical term referring to a large area along the eastern shore of the Mediterranean Sea, including Greece, Syria, the Ottoman Empire, and Egypt. Even when they were supposedly at peace, the Christians and the Muslims never trusted one another or succeeded for long in abiding by the treaties they negotiated. Each side often captured prisoners from the other side and made the captives slaves. To the seafaring men of Europe, captivity in Barbary was a danger worse than shipwreck. The Barbary Corsairs, or pirates, often hunted far from home in the 16th and 17th centuries. They often attacked cities along the European coast, capturing prisoners as well as other prizes. Their ships could also be seen cruising along the Dutch coast, and in 1631 they carried away the entire able-bodied population of the little port of Baltimore in County Cork, Ireland. Three years later, they kidnapped 800 victims in Iceland. It's amazing that it was possible for the pirates of those small states to plunder the commerce and evade or defy the navies of the most powerful states of Europe. They had little domestic commerce and they had no industry worth mentioning. Certainly, they had no serious war potential. They did not threaten the independence of European states. They made no attempts to conquer any lands. 
and they never stopped the Mediterranean trade altogether. But they constantly molested it and restricted its progress. In the Middle Ages, the inhabitants in the area had been landsmen. But after Isabella and Ferdinand drove the Muslims out of the Iberian Peninsula in 1492, they turned to creating a sea power in a defensive move, fearing Spain and Portugal might turn their conquering spirit towards them. So began the activity of the Barbary Corsairs. Algiers, Tunis, and Tripoli, three of the Barbary states, were governed by pashas, or days, that's spelled D-E-Y, and created virtually independent pirate republics. The rulers sanctioned the marauding pirates, and in fact, they depended on their plunder to finance the state. In the seaports, rulers and ruled seem to have been equally cruel and capricious, equally extortionate and corrupt. In the 1600s, the corsairs introduced a new style of sailing ships into the Mediterranean, sleeker, faster ships, ones where there were batteries of cannon on each side of the ship and sails rather than oars to propel them. Ending the era when there were no fighting ships on the sea except galleys, galleys which were propelled by slaves manning the oars, sometimes as many as 180 or more. They would have some guns, but battle tactics usually called for ramming the enemy ship and or boarding and fighting hand-to-hand, which meant with cutlasses, knives, cudgels, and sheer brute strength. Often, renegade Europeans would join with the Barbary pirates, moving their residents to the raucous and wild port towns along the African coast. They brought with them, those Europeans, their shipbuilding skills and their battle strategies. The vessels they helped build those I just mentioned, had numerous advantages over galleys, the primary one being they no longer required several hundred slaves to man the oars. This canceled the need to haul enough food and water to feed them. These new ships were maneuverable, fast, and could sail in shallow waters. Since fewer men were required to handle them, the Corsairs could bring more men-at-arms with them. When they patrolled the waters of the Mediterranean, the pirates sailed in squadrons, making it easier to intimidate and subdue an unprotected merchant ship. By the time the United States won its independence, the Corsairs had been preying on the world's merchant ships for 300 years. Their methods were simple. Cruising the Mediterranean in small, fast ships, they boarded merchant ships, overwhelmed the crew by crossing from ship to ship, 
with knives in their teeth, swords and gun in hand, yelling and cursing as they slashed their way across the deck. And they would take all of the crew captive. The crews would be held in captivity until their home countries agreed to pay ransom for their release. If no ransom were paid, they would be sold into slavery. Most European countries had finally found it practical simply to pay a yearly tribute to the Pashas in order to buy their ships free passage through the Mediterranean. Often, nations compete against competing against each other for a leading position in world trade would pay a higher tribute and encourage the pirates to attack their enemies who could not afford such high demands. As long as the colonial Americans were flying the British flag on their merchant ships, they were protected from the plundering of the Corsairs by the British Royal Navy and by the treaties between England and the Barbary States. But as soon as they declared independence, they were fair game. Following the end of the Revolutionary War, the United States began to expand its maritime commerce through worldwide trade. Uh, as colonies, under the rules and regulation of mercantilism, commerce could only be carried out with Britain, and every ship of necessity flew the British flag. After independence, however, they sailed with no protection from English treaties or the Royal Navy. The first threat to American shipping came from Algiers. By 1793, the loss of American merchant ships to Algerine pirates had grown at an alarming rate. In 1784, Congress agreed to negotiate treaties with the four Barbary states. They appointed a special commission to oversee the negotiations. John Adams, Benjamin Franklin, and Thomas Jefferson were sent to London to meet with the Pashas of Morocco, Tripoli, Algiers, and Tunis to agree on terms of tribute and the release of over a 100 Americans which were being held prisoners. Congress agreed on a yearly tribute of $80,000 to ensure against harassment of American shipping. Although Morocco would uphold the treaty terms, the others not so much. The most powerful of the North African states, Algiers, soon ignored the terms and in the summer of 1785, pirates captured two American ships and held the 21 men aboard for ransom. The largely ineffective Continental Navy had been decommissioned after the war ended in 1783. Now, the U.S. needed warships. President Washington asked Congress in 1794 to approve a bill authorizing the creation of a naval force to protect American merchant vessels from the North African pirates. Taking only a few months to deliberate, Congress passed an act to provide naval armament. This called for the building 
of a fleet of six ships, which would, in essence, create the United States Navy. Here, I would like to take a few minutes to talk about the United States specifications and details of preparing to battle the pirates. I think it's fascinating comparing 230 years ago to how it must be now. I want to read from the actual Act of 1794. It's fairly brief. I may summarize some of the sections. I could summarize it all, but I believe it has greater impact to hear how the men of the time spoke and wrote. I hope you find it as interesting as I do, especially when it comes to listing the rations allowed for food. So, here goes. An Act to Provide a Naval Armament, March 18, 1794. Whereas the depredations committed by the Algerine Corsairs on the commerce of the United States render it necessary that a naval force should be provided for its protection. Section 1. Be it therefore enacted by the Senate and House of Representatives of the United States of America in Congress assembled, that the President of the United States be authorized to provide, equip, and employ four ships to carry 40 guns each and two ships to carry 36 guns each, by purchase or otherwise. Section 2. And be it further enacted, that there shall be employed on board each of the said ships of 40 guns, one captain, four lieutenants, one lieutenant of marines, one chaplain, one surgeon, and two surgeons' mates, and in each of the ships of 36 guns, one captain, three lieutenants, one lieutenant of marines, one surgeon, one surgeon's mate, who shall be appointed and commissioned in like manner as other officers of the United States are. Section 3. And it be further enacted that these shall be employed in each of the said ships the following warrant officers, who shall be appointed by the President of the United States, to wit, one sailing master, one purser, one boatswain, one gunner, one sailmaker, one carpenter, and eight midshipmen, and the following petty officers, who shall be appointed by the captains of the ships, respectively, in which they are to be employed, two master's mates, one captain's clerk, two boatswain's mates, one sailmaker's mate, two gunner's mates, one yeoman of the gun room, nine quarter gunners, and for the four larger ships, two additional quarter gunners, two carpenter mates, one armorer, one steward, one cooper, one master-at-arms, and one cook. Section 4 and be it further enacted that the crews of each of the said ships of 44 guns shall consist of 150 seamen, 100 midshipmen, an ordinary seaman, one sergeant, 
one corporal, one drum, one fife, and 50 marines, and that the crews of each of the said ships of 36 guns shall consist of 130 able seamen and midshipmen, 90 ordinary seamen, one sergeant, two corporals, one drum, one fife, and 40 marines, over and above the officers herein before mentioned. And be it further enacted that the President of the United States be and is hereby empowered to provide by purchase or otherwise in lieu of said ships a naval force not exceeding in whole that by this act directed so that no ship thus provided shall carry less than 32 guns as he may so provide and proportion thereof which in his discretion he may think proper okay and here's how they're supposed to be paid and be it further this is section six and be it further enacted that the pay and subsistence of the respective commissioned and warrant officers be as follows a captain seventy five dollars per month and six rations per day now keep that in mind when later I tell you what a ration is. A lieutenant, $40 a month and three rations per day. A lieutenant of Marines, $26 a month and two rations a day. A chaplain, $40 a month and two rations per day. A sailing master, $40 a month and two rations per day. A surgeon, $50 a month, and two rations per day. A surgeon's mate, $30 a month, and two rations per day. A purser, $40 a month, and two rations per day, and so on. I'm skipping section seven, which gives the pay of the petty officers and so on. And section section five and be it further enacted that the president of the united states be in his is hereby empowered to provide by purchase or otherwise in lieu of said ships now hang on a second i think i am repeating some of these so this is section seven and be it further enacted that the pay to be allowed to the petty officers, midshipmen, seamen, ordinary seamen, and marines shall be fixed by the President of the United States, provided that the whole sum to be given for the whole pay aforesaid shall not exceed $27,000 per month, and that each of the said persons shall be entitled to one ration per day. Section 8 that it be further enacted that the ration, ration shall consist of as follows. On Sunday, a ration is one pound of bread, one and a half beef, and half a pint of rice. On Monday, one bread, one pork, half a pint of peas or beans, and four ounces of cheese. 
on Tuesday, one pound of bread, one and a half beef, and one potato or turnip, and pudding. Wednesday, one pound of bread, two ounces of butter, four cheese, and a half a pint of rice. Thursday, one pound of bread, one pork, and a half a pint of peas or beans. Friday, one pound of bread, one salt fish, two ounces of butter, or one gill of oil. And a gill is a half a cup. I had to look that up. And one potato. Saturday, they get a, a ration is a pound of bread, one pork, half a pint of peas or beans, and four ounces of cheese. And there shall also be allowed one half pint of distilled spirits per day, or in lieu thereof, one quart of beer per day to each ration. Provided, oh, this is section nine, provided always, and be it further enacted, that if a peace shall take place between the United States and the Regency of Algiers, that no further proceedings be had under this act. In other words, if peace is declared, stop building. President Washington turned over the task of overseeing the completion of the project to Secretary of War Henry Knox. Knox had been a Connecticut bookseller before the Revolutionary War and became General Washington's chief of artillery during the war. Having been part of a committee chosen to investigate the possibilities of developing a naval force in 1791, Knox had become acquainted with several shipwrights and had gained some knowledge of the technicality of shipbuilding, specifications and ratings of warships, and of the reasons that the Continental Navy had such poor performance. Knox would take that knowledge and incorporate it in his specifications for the new ships. His plans had influenced Congress's decision of 1794. Those plans were that of the six frigates to be built, three were to have 44 guns and three to have 36 guns. The specific design was to be the task of a Philadelphia shipwright named Joshua Humphreys. Humphreys had been active in converting several merchant ships into war vessels for the Continental Navy. Uh, incidentally, an activity that had him ejected from the Society of Friends. In other words, from the Quakers who were passive. Having learned from the failures of the Continental Navy, Humphreys was of the opinion that American frigates should be constructed in such a way that in stormy seas they would perform better than double-decked warships, but still be fast enough to escape an overly large enemy navy. Humphreys' two-deck ships would be nearly equivalent in size to a traditional three-deck man-of-war, and the line of the ships would be trimmed and tapered to give them more speed 
and better maneuverability. Knox appointed a young shipwright, Josiah Fox, to be Humphrey's assistant. Fox had learned his skill at the Navy Yard in England. In 1793, the young man had traveled to America to study American ship to study American shipbuilding techniques. The two men, Humphreys and Fox, first made scale half models of the hulls, then created full-size templates to be used by the different shipyards in constructing the actual ships. The partnership of the two men went through some troubled times as the men disagreed on what the specification of these frigates should be. Finally, unable to agree, they each submitted their own designs to Knox. Knox, knowing he didn't have the knowledge to make such a decision, called on a more qualified man to make the final decision. The ultimate result was a compromise between the two plans. Some historians have called these innovative frigates the first pocket battleships. They were more powerful than the normal frigate, but smaller than the 74-gun men of war found in the British Royal Navy. This new class of ship would be the most powerful of that type on the sea able to carry 30 24-pound guns on the 44-gun ships plus 28 42-pound cannons on the quarter-deck and forecastle. The smaller 36-gun ships could carry 28 18-pounders on the gun deck with an additional 20 32-pound guns on the quarter-deck and forecastle. If you're like me, I had to look up what those terms meant, quarterdeck and forecastle. Gee, right. The hulls of the ships were to be constructed of live oak, evidently a wood far superior in strength to white oak or English oak normally used. Live oak was only found in the coastal regions and islands off the South, South Carolina and Georgia coasts and was harder to cut and transport than expected, which led to long delays in the building process. Be patient. I'll get back to the Barbary Pirate soon. But I thought you, Josh, would be interested in what went into making these ships. As luck would have it, before construction could be completed, in March of 1796, a peace accord was negotiated between the United States and the Dey of Algiers, which meant, according to the Naval Act of 1794, construction of the ships was to be halted. However, heated debate in Congress over the issue led to an agreement that construction of the three ships closest to completion should be resumed. March 10, 1796, the first of the nation's new warships, the United States, was launched in Philadelphia. Four months later, September 7th, the Constellation entered the waters. On, an, 
on October the 21st, 1797, the Constitution was ready to patrol the water of the Mediterranean. All six ships would eventually be built and called into service against the Barbary Corsairs. Here is a bite-sized bit of history of these first ships of the U.S. Navy. The Constitution was built in the shipyards of Boston, Massachusetts, and remains in commission to this day. In fact, um, we saw the Constitution when we were in Boston this past summer. The ship, the United States, was built in the shipyards of Philadelphia, and it was broken up in 1865. And I will tell you about that in a few minutes. The president was built in the shipyards of New York City. It was captured by the British in the War of 1812. The ship Congress was built in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, um, and broken up in 1834. The Constellation was built in uh, the shipyards in Baltimore, and it was broken up in 1853. The Chesapeake was built in the shipyards of Gosport, Virginia, and was captured by the British in the War of 1812. Now, back to Algiers and the pirates. In 1790, Algerian pirates had captured 11 American ships and more than 100 prisoners. They, those would be added to the ones who had been held for over 10 years already. Accounts of how those prisoners suffered are too horrible to contemplate. Thomas Jefferson, newly inaugurated in 1800, had always been against paying tribute and had wanted to answer violence with violence. Therefore, it was no surprise that one of his first acts as president was to send some of the new ships to the Mediterranean. He sent what he called a squadron of observation consisting of the President, the Philadelphia, and the Essex, plus the sloop of war, the Enterprise. According to the Encyclopedia Britannica, a sloop of war is a small sloop-rigged warship with about uh, mounting about 20 guns. In modern usage, it is practically synonymous with the cutter. I don't know how that could be, however, because a sloop, by definition, is a sailing ship with a single mast and a fore and aft rig, while a modern cutter has no sails at all. How about it, Josh? Didn't you sail on cutters in the Coast Guard? But I veered from the point again. The squadron of observation arrived in Gibraltar on July 1st, 1801, under the command of Commodore Richard Dale. Four months before, the Pasha of Tripoli, Yusuf Karamanli, demanded a new treaty and a higher tribute. Jefferson refused the new treaty and higher tribute, so in May 1801, Tripoli declared war on the United States. Dale's mission then changed from one of observation to a state of war. He ordered his squadron to Tripoli. He had been... Uh, ordered to commence an aggressive action, engaging the pirates, but also to attack the city. 
He chose instead to adopt a passive policy by simply blockading the Algerian harbor. Some of his subordinate officers, however, revealed their enthusiasm to engage the Corsairs. Lieutenant Andrew Sterrett, commanding the Enterprise, engaged a Corsair ship, the Tripolin, on August the 1st, and quickly defeated it. Out of the 80 crew members on the Tripolin, 60 were lost, while the Enterprise sustained no casualties. The Barbary pirates, on lighter ships with crews unskilled in gunnery, were no match for the U.S. naval vessels with their skilled sailors and gunnery experts. In April 1802, Dale was replaced by Commodore Richard Morris. Morris arrived in Gibraltar with an expanded fleet. He brought seven frigates and a sloop to add to Dale's squadron. Rather than complying with orders to take aggressive action against Tripoli, he followed Dale's example of simply blockading the harbor and escorting American merchant ships to save passage in the Mediterranean. Morris was recalled and a court of inquiry censored him for lack of diligence. After two years of war, the first of the Barbary Wars, little had been done toward resolving the conflict. In June of 1803, however, a new commander of the Mediterranean fleet would change all of that. Commodore Edward Preble, a veteran of the Continental Navy, known to be short-tempered and a stern disciplinarian, was still admired for his great courage, his fairness with the men under him, and his expertise as a mariner. As soon as he arrived at Gibraltar, he organized his squadron and established his own set of rules. He trained the young mariners under him, and they would go on to become heroes of the U.S. Navy during the First uh, Barbary War, the War of 1812 and the Second Barbary War. Men such as Stephen Decatur, James Lawrence, Isaac Hall, David Porter, Charles Stewart, and William Bainbridge. I won't be able to do each of them justice in this podcast, but I will mention one or two of them and their exploits. And perhaps with their names, you might do some research on your own if you're interested in finding out their heroic deeds during the Barbary Wars. Preble's men had their first battles with the Tripolitans in October 1803. And by the end of the end of October, Captain Brain Bainbridge had run the Philadelphia onto an uncharted reef while trying to take on two Tripolitan ships. He threw everything he could overboard to lighten the ship, hoping to set it free, but it remained wedged against the reef. He was forced to surrender the ship and crew to the Corsairs. He and his men were taken prisoner. They were held in captivity for 19 months. The Tripolitans took the Philadelphia and had it refitted and prepared for action. The situation was embarrassing for the Americans, but even worse was that now the Philadelphia added to the strength of the Tripolitan squadron. Believing it impossible to take the ship from the Corsairs, Preble decided that rather than let the pirates use it, the Philadelphia should be destroyed. Lieutenant Stephen Decatur, a quite handsome young man, 21 years old at the time, 
I know, guys, you're probably wondering why I mentioned this, but I saw some portraits of him while I was doing the research, and he was, was exceptionally good-looking, kind of like my son and grandsons. At any rate, he led over 70 volunteers on a night raid to the Philadelphia. He used a captured Tripolitan ship, renamed the Intrepid, to get it into the harbor. A pilot who spoke Arabic called out for permission to tie up alongside the Philadelphia. The Corsairs finally discovered the ruse, but Decatur and his men were already aboard the Philadelphia. In a short, violent, hand-to-hand -hand fight, the Americans gained control and quickly set the ship ablaze. Decatur's heroic exploit earned him a promotion to captain, and the success the success of the action created a sensation in the States. Preble planned to attack the city of Tripoli and rescue Bainbridge and his crew. The grounding of the Philadelphia in the shallow waters along the coast had convinced him that he needed shallow draft ships for his attacks. He borrowed six small gunboats and two bomb catches. Those were short, three-masted ships, fitted with mortars, and used for bombarding places on shore. Preble borrowed them from King Ferdinand IV of Sicily. He planned his attacks for the month of August, 1804. On August 3rd, Preble, aboard the Constitution, led his squadron toward Tripoli. The American force was outnumbered, but as the battle raged for over two and a half hours, the U.S. Navy triumphed. Americans captured three enemy gunboats and sunk three others. They then turned their guns toward the Pasha's castle. There were four more attacks in August, and the city was shelled for days on end. Although Preble sent messages to the Pasha in an attempt to negotiate for the prisoners, the Tripolitan leader stubbornly refused to cooperate, so the Americans continued their bombardments. In early September, Preble tried another tack. He had the Intrepid loaded with barrels of gunpowder, and a small volunteer crew was to sail into the midst of the pirate ships in the harbor, abandon the ship, and blow it up. But the Corsairs recognized the Americans, and cannon fire spewed forth from the Tripolitan Citadel. A direct hit ignited the gunpowder on the Intrepid, Ship and crew were destroyed. Preble continued the bombardment of the city. Later in September, Commodore Samuel Barron arrived with reinforcements, and Preble sailed back to America. Barron ceased the attacks on Tripoli, but kept the blockade intact. He developed a new approach to peace, hoping to undermine the authority of the Pasha. The American consul in Tunis, Army Lieutenant William Eaton, had suggested that an overland army should unseat the reigning Pasha Karamanli with his older brother Hamid, who had been uh, unseated himself and had been exiled to Egypt. So Eaton, with a detachment of Marines from the American ship Argus, uh, an army of mercenaries, and Hamid, with his retinue, set out for Derna, a city near Tripoli. With the aid of three American ships, the Argus, the Hornet, and the Nautilus, the Marines captured the city.
the story of that uh, adventure of Eaton and his army on their way to Tripoli is an adventure story in and of itself. Uh, and it was that attempt by Eaton and those Marines that led to the song, the Marine song, uh, when it talks about uh, from the halls of Montezuma to the shores of Tripoli was based on that uh, attempt by the Marines to take Tripoli. But uh, Karamanli, hearing of the capture of Dar Derna and realizing he was about to be ousted, agreed to negotiate peace. He capitulated to the Americans' offer of $60,000 for the release of the American prisoners and accepted a treaty that required no tribute. The plans to replace Karamanli with Hamet were no longer needed, and Hamet was left in Derna. War with Tripoli was over, but the conflict between the United States and England was heating up, and war at home seemed imminent. So American ships in the Mediterranean were ordered back to the United States. By 1815, a new ruler had taken over in Algiers, and he reneged on the Treaty of 1805 by ordering the capture of American merchant ships. President James Madison had just signed treaties with Britain, ending the War of 1812, but he did not hesitate in responding to Algiers' actions. He appealed to Congress for authorization of military action against Algiers. In February, he sent a squadron of nine warships to end Barbary tribute. This was beginning of what was called the Second Barbary War. In his address to Congress, President Madison said, I recommend the expediency of an act declaring the existence of a state of war between the United States and the Day of Algiers. Madison saw this declaration of war as a necessity for not only protecting American merchant ships in the region, but also to assert the United States' dominance as a power to be reckoned with. In his speech, he stressed that Algiers had committed acts of overt and direct warfare against the citizens of the United States trading in the Mediterranean, some of whom are still detained in captivity, end quote. So Congress declared war on March 2, 1815. Commodore Stephen Decatur, that hero of destroying the ground at Philadelphia to keep it out of the pirates' hands, was ordered to sail to Algiers and attack any Algerian ships he came across. Decatur's squadron of 10 ships sailed from New York on May the 20th. On June the 15th, his squadron pressed passed through the Straits of Gibraltar and encountered Algerine ships returning from attacks in the Atlantic. Decatur initiated an assault and captured two Algerine ships right away with their crews of nearly 500, killing the Algerine commander in the process with minimal loss of his men or ships. By late June, Decatur reached Algiers with the captured vessels, and he positioned his fleet outside the port of Algiers. The port captain and Swedish consul came out to negotiate, 
and Decatur made it clear the United States would dictate the terms. The treaty, written by Decatur, contained demands for the release of American prisoners and compensation for their suffering. He also included mandates that no tributes would ever again be paid. In December 1815, the treaty was ratified. It was a landmark moment for American foreign policy, bringing an end to decades of oppression and fear and declaring that the United States would no longer be harassed by Barbary pirates and could from now on safely pursue its economic interests in the Mediterranean. Thank you for listening, Brian. If you have comments, I would love for you to let me know. We can talk about it. For previous podcasts, anyone who might be listening other than Brian, uh, look for History Bites on Spotify. I invite you to view the lessons on American history I've been taping for my YouTube channel. It is also called History Bites. Watch for the next podcast, which will be on the fur trade and mountain men. Tune in and join me in learning a bit more from history. The Roman statesman Cicero said, Not to know what happened before one was born is always to be a child. Keep learning.